Well, it is a joy to be opening up God's Word with you again. We will be in the New Testament book of Titus. We're reading Titus 2, verses 11 through 15 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. And we are in our eighth week uh, in this short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his ministry partner, Titus, who was there on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And we're finishing our journey through this epistle next Sunday. And quick plug, I want to try something next week. Um, We have spent, we will have spent nine weeks here in Titus. And if there are questions that you have, if there's things that you're still chewing on, if there's things that you're contemplating, I want to kind of end that journey with a little question. portion of question and answer at the end of next Sunday's sermon. So if you have a question, you can write it down. You can bring it with you. You can email me at ryan at elamefc.org. Thank you. Uh, You can uh, put it as a comment on the YouTube uh, stream. Sorry, words this morning. Complicated. Um, But we would love to when we go on these kind of long journeys in Scripture together, I, I don't want to finish our time without giving folks a chance to ask their questions and whatnot. So we're going to try that next week. But I'll be honest, nine weeks in Titus, and Titus is not a corner of the Scripture I've ever spent this much time in. Titus is usually not anyone's go-to book Uh, There's not many life verses that come out of Titus. Uh, It's hard to walk into Hobby Lobby and find kind of a a piece of inspirational wall art that comes out of Titus. And now don't get me wrong, this this book is rich with instruction. It's, It's helpful. It's practical. It helps us really, it serves to set write God's church for mission, to to get us in alignment with Christ's love and Christ's leadership. But it is rarely eloquent. With one exception, our passage today, which is verses 11 through 15, in the heart of this letter is this, this gem this brilliant jewel that, in this kind of beautiful and potent way, Paul gives us a summary of what the gospel is and its effect on our life. And so I want us to read it together. And I've actually, uh, you might have gotten these as you're walking through the door. They're going to be at the tables uh, at the entrance exits if you uh, didn't grab one. But I wanted to give you sermon notes this week because I'm going to encourage you guys, we have an assignment this week, is to actually memorize, to to remember, to commit to long-term memory these four verses. And I know memorization feels a bit like an outdated uh, life skill. Most of us now carry our brains in our hands, right? We, we depend on our phones to remember everything important for us. But Scripture actually commends the practice of storing up God's words in our hearts. 
It says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It says in Psalm 119, I have stored up my word, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the instruction of the Lord. The one who meditates on it day and night. In Psalm 37, 31, the instruction of the Lord is in his heart. His steps do not slip. There is something identity forming and character shaping about treasuring God's words within us. And I really do believe that it is an integral part of God's process of making us new from the inside out. So I'm going to invite you this week to exercise your memory muscles once again. So, but let's, without preamble, let's dive into God's words that I'm inviting you to store up in your heart. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then bonus verse. Declare all these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That last little verse in this chapter is a special charge to the, to the preacher. Paul's laying before us this kind of threefold task of, of proclamation and encouragement and conviction. But this morning, I really want us to focus in on 11 through 14. So we're going to spend the rest of our time together unpacking those four verses. So for the grace of of God has appeared. What's the for there for? Remember, Paul's just finished this lengthy section of practical instructions. He's laid out for the Christians of Crete what it looks like to submit to Christ's leadership and love in all aspects of both their private and their public lives. And he's pushing back against these kind of former corrupt church leadership that was there in the church at Crete that had kind of fully divorced their theology from their lifestyle. They claimed to know God, but their actions were denying that they have any actual relationship or communion with God. So Paul started off this letter talking and addressing behavior but now he's starting to pivot. He wants to share the theology behind this lifestyle to which he is calling the Christians of Crete. 
And he declares that the basis and source of this lifestyle of godliness is the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared. Paul's talking about this kind of incursion, this massive incursion into human history of something that is typically divine and invisible. The grace of God has appeared. Grace, quite simply, is getting from God better than what we deserve. But it's also more than that. It's receiving from God active repair, healing in the midst of our brokenness. And when Paul says the grace has appeared, it's not just something that's kind of metaphysical or philosophical. For him, this is tangible. Grace has a face, and it's Jesus. Grace arrived into human history, into our stories, in the person of Jesus. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, we get from God better than we deserve. And we find in God active repair for what is broken in us. For the grace of God has appeared, and the next piece of this is bringing salvation for all people. Jesus' arrival opened the door for salvation. Salvation is a comprehensive rescue and renewal. It's something that's holistic, that, that touches our whole life, both our past and our present and our future. It's something that impacts our, our whole person. Not just our mind, but our heart and our soul and our strength. And Paul says the scope of this salvation is vast. Salvation is for everyone. For all people without distinction across time and space, across background and culture. All are invited to receive this gift. Even the wild pagans of Crete. Even you, even I. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. It doesn't just bring salvation. It goes on. And the grace of God trains us. The grace that saves us also changes us. And the Greek word that Paul uses here is the same one from which we get our English word uh, pedagogy. It speaks of education. It speaks of teaching with discipline, of instructing and correcting. And Paul really wants us to know that, yes, Jesus came to save us from the penalty of our wrongdoing, to give us healing in our woundedness. But he also came to invite us to follow him, right? You see in the Gospels, 
He says, follow me. Enlist as my students. Become apprentices in my way of life. Let me train you. And what does grace train us to do? Both to say no and to say yes. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's interesting, ancient Greek culture put all of its hope in education, in a liberal arts education. They believed that Greek culture would civilize the most unruly individual. They were confident that if you train someone in arts and literature and in rhetoric and philosophy and science and history and mathematics, that all of that training would shape them into a mature and a wise and a virtuous person. And they kind of put all of their eggs in that basket. But then you have the Cretans, right? Their belief is like, well, Greek culture will civilize you, but we have these Cretans who are highly educated. They've been steeped in Greek culture from infancy, but they're still a wild bunch of pirates who are violent and deceitful and whose vices are kind of renowned all across the ancient world. The whole kind of plan failed. But it's not that Greek culture will civilize you. Paul's saying what we actually need is we need the gospel, grace, to enculturate us into God's civilization. He's kind of flipping this cultural hope and trust on its head. He's saying the face of grace, Jesus will teach and prepare us for life in God's love, life in God's family, life in God's kingdom purposes. We do need an education, but we need a a gospel education. And he says, Guess what? That is what God's grace has come to do. It's a grace that not only saves, but also changes. And he says, hey, we need to partner with God's grace at work in our lives in the present. We we participate in the outworking of God's renewal. Being made new. It's, It's by grace alone, but it requires us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and yes to self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. I'm reminded how early Christians used to practice baptism. They were a bit more hardcore than we are. We have a large trough 
I turn up the water heater, we fill it with warmed water, and we dunk you. Ancient Christians, like the believers in Crete, they had a slightly different practice. They always preferred to baptize in cold, living water, moving water. So maybe outdoors in a creek uh, somewhere, or a stream, or in kind of an indoor bathhouse or fountain. And baptism is all about us participating in the story and the rescue of Jesus. It's about joining our life symbolically to Christ's life. And what is true of him becomes true of us. So when we choose to put our faith in Jesus, we say that our old self, our old nature is crucified with Jesus on his cross. The old us dies there with him. And then like Jesus, we are, we are buried. Jesus, it was in his tomb. For us, it's under those waters of baptism. And then we're raised to walk in newness of life. We, we step out of the water and we say that old worldly way of living with its corruption, that died on the cross. We were buried and now We're raised to walk in newness of life. There is a a fresh start. The old has gone. The new has come. There's nothing magical about the ritual, but it is the symbolic declaration of what's taking place, of what the grace of God has accomplished in our lives. But the person being baptized also plays a role in this ritual. And this is where the crazy ancient Christians come in. They had this practice that you would go to your baptism in old clothes, in clothes that kind of represented who you are before you met Christ. And then when you came, you would strip off those old clothes And you would descend into those baptismal waters, those cold, flowing uh, baptismal waters, naked. And then you would emerge from them, and you would be wrapped in a new white robe. Now, I love the rituals and the symbols and the practices of the early church. As long as I'm your pastor, we are not going back (laughs) to naked baptism. Uh, It's a little too weird for me. Uh, Like I said, hardcore, weirdly hardcore in some ways. But I do love the imagery there because the first act of newness of life when they come out of that water was to renounce the old clothes. It's right there. They could grab it again and put it back on. But their first act is to say no and say yes to that new robe, that new garment. And Paul is saying here, renounce those old clothes. Don't put them on again. Those old clothes, that's your godless past. That's your false self. That's your unresourced way of living. 
A way of being that's been shaped by your passions and the impulses and the value system of the world that is apart from God, the world that is in opposition to God. Don't put that back on. Instead, say yes to the new robe. It's white and it's clean. It's your new true self. It's your God-filled future. It's your resourced way of living. It's a way of being that's being shaped in the present by Christ's love and leadership, by the Spirit's work in your life. It's being empowered by the truth of the gospel. So put on that robe. Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives from here on out. Self-controlled, upright, godly. That little string of three adjectives, I think, is kind of speaking on three different levels of relationship. Self-controlled is the, the relationship with ourself. Having your emotions and your appetites under control by the power of the gospel at work in you. Upright is the, the gospel being exemplified in justice in the way that you interact with other people. And then godly is having your love of God, your, your communion with God, your being held in the hands of God. It, that relationship impacts you in ways that are visible in your observable external life. Saying, let the gospel do its work on all of those levels. Say yes to that. This is what being saved by grace looks like in the present age, Paul says. But if there's a present age, that also means there's a future age which gets us to the the rest of our section. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the arrival of our blessed hope, which is Jesus' return, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we live now in this kind of already, but not yet. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he's defeated the powers of evil, of sin, of death, He's in the process of making all things new, even us. We live in that already. His definitive act of of rescue and renewal, it took place 2,000 years ago. The paperwork's been signed. The down payment's been paid. He is the owner. But he's not yet taken full possession of his 
property, his world. And I know that metaphor falls short a little bit. But I'm trying to say that the salvation we can experience in Jesus, it has a past, a present, and a future reality. The world has been saved. It's in the process of being rescued and renewed. And one day, at Christ's arrival, it will wholly and ultimately be made new. It's made new in all capital letters. This is what this, that will sound like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is true not only for our world and for the cosmos, but it's True for us as well. We're sinners shaped, saved by grace. We're in the process of being shaped into better reflections of Jesus, our beloved Lord. And we exist in the already and the not yet. We're still in a season of refinement, of correction, We're still these stubborn hunks of marble that Jesus, the kind of master sculptor, is breaking chunks off, sometimes painfully, to better reveal who we are, what our true image is as shining sons and daughters of God. We live in the already and the not yet. But there is a future appearing of glory that is for us as well. This is what Scripture teaches us. 1 John 3, 2-3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. Live now into the image that you are becoming. Live now as your future self, as your true self that Christ is unveiling, as that masterpiece that will be unveiled at the appearing of his glory, when not only he will appear gloriously as he is, but uh, when we will too. Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says this, For you have died, the old you is gone, and your life, the new you, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also will 
we appear with him in glory. His glorious appearing will be our glorious appearing. And knowing then the end of our story, Paul says, live now with that end in mind. Labor with the Spirit to live a life of Christ-echoing godliness. Let His grace train you, because this is your ultimate destination. And I really do love that word glory here in this passage. Glory in the Greek is doxa, uh, which is like brilliance, shining radiance. But glory in Hebrew language is kavod. And I love it because kavod is um, it's hefty. It's weightiness. It's the sense of, of heaviness and mass. Something that has oomph, intangible reality. For 33 years, grace had oomph intangible reality when Jesus came in great humility in the form of a servant and took up residence among us to rescue and teach us to to love us and journey with us to rebuke the powers of that be and to to make a way for us to be in beautiful communion with God with others with our true selves But then he went back to his father, and we live in the already, but not yet. Yet we await his coming in glory when his full weight is finally put on the scale. We caught a glimpse of it at the transfiguration when three of his disciples saw him as he truly is. But when he comes again, it won't simply be pitching his tent among us. It will be making his home with us. He'll be authenticating his gospel. The gospel we proclaim by beyond any shadow of a doubt. He'll bring judgment to humanity's evil and he'll establish true justice on the earth. One day he'll come in glory in a way that I tangibly can see and touch and hear the very presence of the invisible God. What a glorious day that will be when God comes in his full heftiness. Let me try to see if I can do this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself 
for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And he says, having reveled in that future glory, Paul's going to bring us back at the end to the past, into the present. And he says, Jesus gave himself for us to forgive us, to blot out and to pay off the penalties of our wrongdoing and our rebellions. But he says that's only half the story. He rescues us for himself so that we might be his special people, those who are his through and through Those who know Him and are known by Him. Those who love Him and are loved by Him. Those who are set apart for His special purposes. Dedicated with an uncompromising passion. A zeal for the good works that He laid out in advance for us to do. God saves us. The grace of God saves us. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God will make us holy and gloriously new. In the meantime, love Jesus and be loved by Jesus. And know you have a job to do. We have a gospel to adorn through the way we live our lives in the present. This whole vision is what it looks like to live and move and face the future in the grace of God. So I commend you this week to try to memorize this. It's hard to meditate on the words of the Lord in the dark hours of the night if it's not in there, treasured, held on to. So meditate, memorize, but even more, respond. How do you respond to this good news of God's grace? For some of you, the response is very practical. It's that first choice when you get out of the baptismal waters. Will you renounce and embrace? Will you say no to that old way of thinking and behaving and believing that has nothing to do with your new reality in Jesus? And say yes to a new life that he's called you to. Sometimes when we hear about this grace, we are so burdened by our guilt of our past that we can't hear the truth that Jesus says, you're new. Those old clothes aren't yours anymore. Receive that word of life. 
For some of you, your response to this passage might literally be to be baptized. God, I've been somewhat trusting in you and and following you, but I want to, to obey in that tangible act. I want this to be a definitive moment in our relationship together that I am saying yes to you utterly and totally. And I'm going to do this little ritual, this tangible, symbolic action because you say, I need that memorial. I need that moment of public commitment, of public allegiance. This is one of the ways I'm going to live out my no to the old and my yes to your grace. I'm going to get baptized in your church. For others of us, our response might be to say, I've been trying to do this on my own for a long time. And I've been wandering. I've been inconsistent. I need a family of faith to be on this journey with. I need a family of grace that themselves are being changed and corrected and made new by God's work in their life, and I need that support system. So maybe it's saying yes to becoming a member of this church. But as the worship team comes back, I I really want you this week to meditate, to memorize, to respond. And maybe you're at the beginning of this journey. And this is one of those things that sometimes we need a little push to take a first step. You might need an actual invitation. You've come, you've been seeking, you've been learning about Jesus. But you need someone to say, hey, will you actually take the plunge into God's grace? Will you let God's grace save you? Wash away your past. Will you let God's grace change you in the present? Give you victory in places you haven't had victory in in a long, long time. And will you let God's grace make you wholly new? Both now, before the rest of your life, and even new beyond death itself. If you haven't made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity to start down that path of saying yes to God's grace. And we're, we're weird as human beings. We need sometimes something tangible. As we live in our own heads, we're like, was that real? Did I really think that? Did I really say that? So maybe you need something tangible. So there's nothing magical, but maybe you just want to raise your hand and say, hey, that's where I'm at this morning. I want to say yes to God's grace for the first time. So if that's you, I invite you to raise your hand so we can come alongside of you and so we can pray about you or pray for you and about you. If today is a day that you are sensing this invitation to say yes to God's grace, in a new way for the first time. Raise your hand and I'll pray.
your God. Your grace rings out in human history. Your grace rings out in our life story. It's hard to think that we have anything to do with a God out there. The distance feels too great. The distance of our characters feel too great. But God, you've passed all of that distance. Your grace has appeared. Lord, you give us better than we deserve, healing in our woundedness. You say, let me save you. Let me change you. Let me make you holy and gloriously new. And then we know that this is the adventure of the rest of our lives. Because it's not a one-time thing. Grace is past, present, and future. It's change and renewal, mind, body, and soul. It's a people for your own possession. Given a new assignment in life. So we say yes. May that yes resound in our life. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yes. Let it be so. That's all that is, is yes. Yes to your grace, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.